welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. And Arsene, we've been reading a really fantastic book, very unusual and really excited to dig into it. So who have we been reading? What is the book we have been reading for the month of July? We've been reading Asylum by Nina Shope. And like you said, it's a very unusual book. It's a historical novel set in 1870s France and dealing with hysteria. And we'll get into all that. But some of the scenes were so gripping. It's almost like a horror novel, some of it. <laughs> Didn't you think? Very evocative of Mary Shelley. And I actually read one of the reviewers, I think, even brought that up. But I had thought about that when I was reading it. I was like, this is like one of those books that just describes... Yeah, horror, the horror of some of that medicine that was going on. So before we dig into this, I really want to welcome Nina Shope to the studio and the Radio Book Club. Thank you for being with us, Nina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan and I feel honoured to be here. Well, as Arson laid out there, this is a book about, it's as the title suggests, Asylum. It's set in a hospital in Paris. It's based on actual real characters, a real doctor and this real woman inspired these characters. And as Arson said, it's uh, about hysteria. So first of all, why was this a time period and a place and the subject that you wanted to explore? Well, um, when I first read about the subject matter, I was actually an undergraduate in college. So it was more than it was about 22 years ago. Um, and at the time I was having panic attacks and a especially bad spell of them. Um, and so when I read about Augustine and Charcot and um, some of the symptoms of hysteria, I couldn't help but think that there was a tiny bit of overlap in the most mild symptoms of hysteria and the most extreme symptoms of panic. And it made me think that if I had lived in a different time period, I could have conceivably been one of these women. And so I started um, really imagining what that life would be like and how you would try to make sense of it and make a life for yourself if that's where you ended up. Um, and the photographs of Augustine were just so um, mysterious and fascinating that as soon as I saw them and read this little bit of information about the history, I wanted to learn more about it. Well, just to give a little bit more background, I mean, this Dr. Charcot was a real doctor, a neurologist, and actually credited with discovering some of these diseases that we're very familiar with now around um, the brain, I think ALS and, you know, MS and, and, and different things like that. But this particular disease that he's looking at, and I'm using disease in air quotes here for the uh, radio audience, is hysteria, which seems so alien to, to folks nowadays because it's not a medical diagnosis that is used. But, you know, just as we as we start talking about this, what was hysteria in terms of being a medical condition at that time? And what, what did it really mean for the people who were labelled then to be hysterics? So, um Charcot sort of brought the diagnosis back into existence after it, it dates back to ancient Greece and it was associated with this wandering womb and this idea that the womb would detach itself and move throughout the body and then need to be lured back in place. But um, during Charcot's time, the diagnosis mostly consisted of sort of a hodgepodge of physiological symptoms um, and what we would now think of as psychological symptoms, but it was prior to the advent of psychiatry. Um, 
And Charcot was actually one of Freud's teachers, and Freud obviously pushed the study of hysteria somewhere completely different. Um, but Charcot was more interested in studying the physical aspects of the disease, which were um, the attacks resembled epileptic seizures, and they would also involve partial paralysis, but there would be no reason um, anatomically for why, this, why the patients were having these symptoms, and some of them had sensory impairments and really a, a very wide bizarre range of symptoms were sort of tucked into the disease of, uh, or the diagnosis of hysteria. And then some of the things that nowadays we would associate with um, PTSD or uh, dissociative disorder, um, borderline personality disorder, those kind of psychological symptoms were also sort of wrapped into the diagnosis. But it was also very much associated with women who weren't uh, following the social norms of the time. And that connection to the womb was still present, even though Charcot was somebody who at first claimed that it wasn't solely rooted in the womb and it wasn't only something that women could get. But then his practice and some of his techniques and the way he represented the disease actually further entrenched the association of hysteria with the female body. So so we're talking about Augustine and Charcot, and this book is really kind of the claustrophobic relationship between those two as doctor and patient. And early in the book, you kind of set this. There's really no other characters. It's really the two of them. You talk about the interns. There's a few, but nobody else is named. Um, but I want readers to get, uh, listeners to get the sense of how this book plays out and this kind of intense relationship they have. So I was hoping you can read a passage for us. Certainly. Sure. So um, the section I'm going to read comes from one of the demonstrations that Charcot would have. He was one of the first doctors to do live demonstrations in front of an audience um, using living patients as models. Um, and it's told from Augustine's perspective and sort of shows the strange self-referential and aesthetic nature of the performances that there's this painting in the room that she's looking at. Um, and the only two things you need to know in terms of French words is the word arc-en-ciel refers to a specific, very recognizable pose in the hysterical attack where um, the body was arched in the shape of a rainbow. And then the word maître is um, a title that that Augustine uses to refer to Charcot. It was often used before doctors' names, professors, professionals, that sort of thing. Um, so you'll hear those two words. You motion to the rear of the amphitheater, where a painting hangs of a body bowed backwards like a bridge. Your fingers trace the shape before you, making a flourish so graceful that it is like flight, like a holy gesture, the swing of a censer in church, leaving plumes of smoke braided in air. The figure is lovelier than a body on a cross. And I think if there is a Eucharist for this, it is a wafer curved like the roof of the mouth, my tongue curling to taste it, this vaulted and weightless thing, like the ceiling of a cathedral that traps in God. A single touch sends me to the floorboards, crumpled like a body deprived of breath. A second renders me rigid, taut. The interns lift me onto a gurney, the audience whispering in excitement, anticipating your approach. And then there is no stage only the sphere around us, the space between us, steadily closing. You say, seize for me, and place your hands on my stomach above my hips. Applying gentle pressure, you release and wait, an eye arching my back, ecstatic, 
pelvis pressing upward, eyes rolling back, teeth gritted, wait for your fingers to find me again, writhing, rocking, unable to stop, legs twisting around themselves, and the bed hardly beneath me now for more than a moment at a time, as if I am levitating, only my head and my toes touching the mattress. You whisper arc-en-ciel, and the reverence in your voice freezes me there, and I cry out, maître, everything in focus for a moment. Each hysteric has her own hysterogenic points, you declare, and it is up to us to discover them, to determine which spots provoke a seizure and which hold the key to its cessation. The patient's body is ever obliging, primed to react to the slightest probing. It is an instrument attuned to our touch. We, in turn, must master the fingerings. That's author Nina Shope reading from her latest novel, Asylum, which is telling the story um, of this actual, in real life, a hospital in France and uh, this real doctor, a famed French neurologist, Charcot. But that passage uh, we heard Nina read there is from the perspective of Augustine. And Augustine is uh, one of the people who are kept in this asylum, this hospital, who's an hysteric. The way Augustine describes this relationship. It's very intimate. It's almost sexual how she describes the the master, Le Maître, the doctor. Um, but it's performative. I mean, he tells her what to do. She does it with her body. I mean, take us through all of that, like why you wanted to write in this way. But what was the reality around how these were almost performances in many ways? Um. So, yeah, Charcot um, presented medicine very theatrically in these grand demonstrations in front of an audience, and he did um, two different versions of them, um, one for his peers and and medical uh, colleagues and students, and then one that was for the general public. And the performances for the general public became very popular, and leading stars and writers and thinkers of the day would flock to Paris to see the performances, and Augustine became Charcot's star patient, in part because she timed her attacks perfectly to coincide with the demonstrations. Um, she would even put intermissions into her seizures that were like perfectly timed. And um, even at the time, that raised people's doubts about whether the disease was real or whether it was contrived or even coerced by the doctors. Um, one of the things when I was writing this, I didn't want to try to come up with an answer for that or have a verdict for it. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence that there was a a big mixture going on of both aspects. Um, There was statistics that Augustine had 1,300 attacks in a year and 154 in a day, and she could wrench her body from lying down to sitting up 30 to 40 times in a minute. And so it's hard for me to imagine that somebody could do that consistently, voluntarily. Um, And the women were also, they were drugged sometimes with very powerful drugs that would um, bring about hallucinations and erotic experiences. And they also um, had sort of this almost explicit system of rewards and punishments where the women who didn't perform like Augustine's were relegated to the wards of the incurables where they weren't expected to ever get out of the asylum. They didn't get much contact with the doctors. They had really um, monotonous kind of life there. And then the stars, like Augustine, at least, you know, they were hearing their condition praised. And in the book, Augustine sort of mistakes that praise and fascination for her disease with a fascination for her from Charcot. 
but they were also having you know these physical encounters with the doctor that were very sexual because of the places and on the body where the doctors would touch to induce the attacks and some of them were you know actually physically invasive um so you know in, in a way i tried to think about augustine being this young woman who's stuck in the asylum and she's having a choice of how she can create a life there and clearly being one of the performers is preferable um but at the same time, you know, I don't question that she is having actual attacks as well. Um, so it's I didn't really want to flatten out that world and come to a verdict about it. But that doubt was there from the beginning, and it's still there. And we really have no way of knowing what was going on now. I mean, I thought it was so fascinating. You you think of they're in an asylum. You think the 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 goal would be to cure these patients, but instead the goal through these public demonstrations, which must have been some sort of high for Charcot, you know, to be applauded like this, like in the theater, like he's the number one theatrical personality in Paris, right? And so the last thing he wants to do, it seems like, is to cure Augustine. And in your book, there there isn't really any sign that there's a cure happening. It's all this exploitative kind of showmanship under the guise of trying to discover more about the disease. And when you think about the times we're in and, you know, you started this book 20 years ago, but now we've lived through the Me Too movement, all these other things going on. How did you think about that as you were writing it? And how did, I think you what you said is true. You did a very good job of not necessarily bringing in our judgment from this moment onto that. But, as a, but writing this and thinking about this, it must have angered you. It must have, you know, must have some of that must have leaked into your thinking about it, even if you're trying to keep it off the page. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I definitely try to do consciously with my writing is is to pull out um, the sort of underlining language and, and structures that have these gendered and problematic um, backgrounds. So, like, for example, a foreground, you know, a word like seminal or something like that to show that even our language that we use to talk about these things um, has if not an agenda, then a lot of assumptions uh, behind it. And ever since the book came out, I mean, obviously with the Supreme Court ruling and stuff, it's become more relevant than I expected, um, and which is very depressing because a lot of the book is about uh, this idea that, you know, women weren't trusted to have autonomy over their own bodies, and there's this deep suspicion that dates back to ancient Greece about the womb being this irrational, uncontrollable um, excessive organ that, you know, somehow makes women unable to live their own lives without being controlled by a man. And um, obviously, <laughs> that is not that far from where we are now, um, in a certain way. And, you know, with the Alito opinion, he even goes back to thinkers who believed in witchcraft, and witchcraft was associated with hysteria, too. So it is kind of eerie to me um, to see how much of that is coming up now and the fact that we're still willing to kind of invade someone else's autonomy and life in that way. And it causes in the book, you know, it's a very extreme example, but it causes, you know, great suffering and injustice. And I think that, you know, that's still the case, obviously, today. So I mean, I hope I, I don't necessarily apply modern ideas, but I'm definitely trying to bring out the, the feminist and sort of gendered dynamics that are going on in the time. Um, yeah, I found that so powerful. I was reading it around the time that the Supreme Court decision came out 
And it just struck me the idea that women have consistently been not just underserved by medicine, but abused by medicine. Um, there's so many examples to give of that. And, uh, you know, the Supreme Court decision, especially women's reproductive capacity and how that has been regulated and controlled and legislated. And here we are in 2022 still having these conversations. Another thing that jumped out at me in terms of, um, you know, what's happening right now was I'd heard of, you know, hysteria and that term hysterical being applied to to women. But in terms of the medical sense, that also was something that was very prominent in in the last few months. It was that very uh, prominent trial, the um, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, two celebrities, a defamation case. And there was a psychologist that Johnny Depp's team had as an expert witness on the stand. And she said she diagnosed Amber Heard, his ex-wife, with hysterical personality disorder. And there was a lot of discussion about this is not an actual diagnosis. This harks back to this time that your book is set in. And I hadn't heard about it in a modern sense at all, but it was, you know, quite endlessly discussed, well, on, you know, social media and various different things. But it got me thinking, it's like, we are so close to these times when women were labelled witches, when women were institutionalised in these medical facilities. So I don't know, if was that something that you had heard about the hysterical personality disorder being deployed in a recent, very prominent sense? I actually didn't hear that about that specific trial. Um, And the diagnosis was officially retired from the DSM in uh, 1980. Um, But obviously, you know, the trope of the hysterical woman is strong and lives on. Um, And one of the things that was really interesting, actually, after the book came out is um, the mother of one of my best friends from childhood uh, wrote me a note and said that her paternal grandmother had been institutionalized in uh, 1950 and for 12 years um, under the diagnosis of traditional hysteria and that she was actually subjected to electroshock um, and other treatments and what they think now was the issue was that she was going through menopause and had undiagnosed diabetes um, and so that really shocked me to think that you know it, it was that close because in the 1950s there were a lot of diagnoses of hysteria um, women were given hysterectomies for it and that sort of thing um, and now it's considered, it basically got replaced by something called conversion disorder, which I don't think we really hear much about. And it, it is for people who have the epileptic seizures or the paralysis and loss of feeling with no uh, physiological reason behind it. But all of the kind of mental, emotional stuff got distributed to other uh, diseases and syndromes. So. You know, an issue that plays out all the time in modern culture and probably forever is the objectification of women. And I was so interested in that you talked about the use of photography. This is not quite the dawn of photography, but this is only 10 to 15 years after the Civil War. This is pretty early in photography's history. And also the plaster casts they make. And there's, you know, you have this amazing scene where Augustine is on stage during a demonstration and She's surrounded by these plaster casts that aren't quite women. She you know, aren't women at all. She's the only live woman. But, to, you know, so talk about that a little bit. And, and what were they trying to do? And what was the purpose of, obviously, the photography was documenting it. But what the plaster cast, too, was so strange. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's so fascinating is that there was this weird paradoxical relationship where, you know, the doctors were dependent on the patient's bodies for the science, 
but then they couldn't actually confirm any of their theories unless the women died and they could do an autopsy on the remains. But then once that was done, there was no going back to the living woman. So there was this very uneasy relationship with how to study the female body. Um, and in the book, at least my conception of Charcot, he, he almost uses these doubles, so these plaster castings and, and the photographs, um, as a way to kind of contain and control the presentation of the disease. He doesn't have to deal with Augustine. They're mute, you know, they're silent, they don't move, um, but they're also lacking an interior and they're one-dimensional um, and they're all surface. So it only manages to get him so far, but at first he thinks of them as ways that, well, I can do, you know, studies on a cast or I can, you know, th they had this idea back at the time that, um, that the visual was completely objective and kind of you couldn't even dispute it. And they were much more skeptical about words and um, written discussions. And so if they could present something visually, they felt like that was proof. And that at the same time, you're seeing all these ways behind the scenes that they're manipulating um, those visual rep representations, especially the photographs, um, and yet presenting them as this completely objective art. And then the doubles don't really stand up to the living body and that they can't quite make the comparison and so the audience is frustrated and so it's just this very interesting weird dynamic yeah it was a you know when you talked about the autopsies one of my the one of the lines that just shocked me you know it was so crazy charcot says to the audience i can't remember the exact quote hopefully you'll remember it, but i mean he says something in a perfect world vivisection would be possible and i think that sums up the attitude towards the women it was just it was you know i shouldn't say unbelievable but it was really shocking and when you talk about a horror novel i mean you know that's the perfect world is vivisection <laughs> so it was really something and the whole thing with photography talking about even in the early state they're manipulating photography you know and and we live in a world now where you can't look at a photography and actually know whether it's been manipulated or not i mean even on you know, you watch a commercial and the big thing with the Google phone is that you can have the magic eraser. You can just erase people out of the photograph. So I thought that was interesting. You're kind of getting into the history of photography. Was, the book was so rich in that. Did you? How much historical research did you have to do to really kind of recreate that time period? What it would be like to take photographs? What were the methods? Like, felt seems like you really hit it, you know, as and from a historical point of view, it was just so fascinating and it feels very authentic to me. So what kind of research had to go into that side of things? Um, so the main books that I used, like I said, I was in, first inspired by The Female Malady, um, which is written by Elaine Showalter, and that's more about the uh, history and representation of female madness. Um, but then I, from that book, I found the, my primary source, which was a French book by a man named Georges Didi Uberman um, called The Invention of Hysteria, and it was only a uh, available in French at the time, and I only had like high school level French skills. So it took me years and years to, I translated the entire book. And it's a very complicated theoretical book written by an art historian with these crazy circuitous sentences. And he does lots of wordplay. And really a lot of the, a, a lot of the ideas in the book and the metaphors come from um, his book and the voice kind of meshes there. Um, and then I did, so that was my main source and I had to avoid getting too many <laughs> sources involved because it was already taking me so long to write the book that I didn't want to overwhelm myself with even more material. Um, but I definitely did look up things about photography at the time, um, the politics of 
photography and the gaze and how people were represented um, and some of the techniques. But I also, I tried to, like I said, to limit it so I wasn't completely stopped in my tracks because it's a lot to kind of go through. You write a lot from the perspective of Augustine herself. And I know that there are photographs of the real Augustine and there are, you know, uh, accounts of her experience in the asylum. So how, how did you balance wanting to create a, a somewhat fictitious character that you could really flush out the interior of with what you knew about the real Augustine uh, without veering too much into trying to adhere to biographical accuracy? Yeah, so I actually, um, one of the things I did setting out to write this was I decided I wasn't going to include any of the biographical facts that happened outside of the asylum. And one of the reasons that I didn't want to do that is I was wary of um, treating her like a case study. And um, some people recently have written about the trauma plot in novels and movies about how, you know, there'll be like one core trauma that explains the whole psychology of the character. And, And even though I didn't think of it in that way exactly, I did feel that if you give causation, the audience immediately just renders everything to that, especially if it's something um, like a sexual assault or something. And I was much more interested in delving into the realm of the bizarreness of the the hospital, the really almost incomprehensible way the disease manifested itself um, and the dynamic between them. So there are a lot of facts about what happened with Augustine in the hospital that are accurate and that really occurred and some of them are very bizarre like she did really go through a period where she could only see in black and white which of course was very evocative after she was so photographed Um, and she did go break out of the asylum and go to her lover's grave site and try to dig it up and then have this attack of tetany where she was frozen in place and they caught her and so there's some pretty amazing things that really did happen Um, but I I definitely didn't want to bring in any kind of prior trauma um, and later, so I used a lot of the Diddy Uberman's research, and he, he looks at Augustine much more theoretically, and that was more interesting to me. And then thinking about what her motivations might be from there um, sort of interested me a lot more. You've been working on this book for 20 years. And so how do you leave it behind once it gets published and you send it out into the universe? What's what's that relationship like for you as a writer? It's really relief at this point because I was... I always felt like the book needed to exist, and but I was always really scared that it wasn't going to. Um, and I worked with it for so long that I feel very much ready to let it exist on its own. Um, at the same time, I feel like I'm still very attached to Augustine as a character, and I think of her almost like third sister. My sister and I will like quote her from the book and things. Uh, so she became very real to me, and. I'm glad I have this kind of lasting attachment to her that will always be there. But I am just overjoyed that it's in the world and that <laughs> I can move forward now. Well, we're very, we're very glad it's in the world, too. And uh, we're very glad that we got to read it for the Radio Book Club. It has been the July selection Asylum by Nina Shope. Nina has been our guest at the Radio Book Club. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Now, we are, as always, going to have additional conversation with um, Nina for After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is the podcast only edition. So you need to subscribe to the podcast to get all of that bonus content. But as we always do at the end of every episode, Arson, we announce the next month's selection and who are we reading and inviting listeners to read along with us for the month of August. 
We're going to read Kali Fiardo Anstein, who we've had on before for her brilliant um, short story collection, uh, Karina and Sabrina. And National Book Award yeah, finalist. Yeah, and so now she's got her debut novel, Woman of Light, which she goes back in time, and it's really set in 1930s Denver, and it's largely based upon her grandmother, I believe. And it really talks about the Latina and the um, indigenous experience in Colorado at that time period. It's a really fascinating novel. Well, please do read along with us and join us on the fourth Thursday of August. That's August 25th at 9 a.m. on KGNU for the Radio Book Club for that interview. But as I said, please do subscribe to the podcast so you get all the additional bonus content and never miss an episode. For KGNU and the Radio Book Club, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore, my co-host. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.